All right, as I said in the introductory video, the first and foremost area we can and must restore now is education. Now, this is one area in which you can still have essentially complete control and you could in many cases make the changes necessary immediately. And if you want to restore America, you have to start by restoring freedom in education first. So let's talk about the idea of education in a free society. First, education in a free society means entirely and only private education. We're never free as long as we're subjected to education based on threats of government penalties or fines to any degree or at any level. And this is, of course, not to deny the prime importance of education in society, the necessity of education, uh, but in education, as in all areas of life, the primary issue will always be sovereignty. Who has legitimate control, legitimate command? To what extent that civil government has control? It will force us to comply with its standards, its dictates, and to that extent, we're not free individuals. We're not free as long as someone else tells us what to do and how to do it, and forces us to do it, and forces us to pay for it. Apart from God alone, no person, no agency has that level of authority in society. And whoever does assumes the role of God in that area of life. Now this applies to our individual liberties, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, etc. We all recognize that, but it applies also to education as much as any other personal decision. Now, in regard to the issue of sovereignty in education, let me address two important issues. And of course, there are many others, uh, but these two stand out right here and right now. Uh, first is the myth of neutrality. And second is the consideration of purpose. Briefly first, the myth of neutrality is simply that. In education and in all areas of life, there is no neutrality. In our view of our responsibility for our own education, as well as for that of our children, we must ask, to whom are we ultimately responsible? To God or to man? Who is sovereign? Who has the right to tell you who, what, when, where, how, etc., to educate? Who has that right? What man has the right to compel you to attend any given school? What man has the right to compel you to pay for someone else's attendance at school? Now, I would submit to you that no man or group of men has that absolute right, and yet that's ex the accepted norm uh, for society today. Well, in a free society, this would not be the case. The myth of neutrality means there is no middle ground on the issue. There is no place between faithfulness to God and submission to a man-dictated, man-driven, man-enforced system that denies God, by the way, excludes God, replaces God. Now, either our society in this area is faithful to God or it is not. And we could talk about that at length, perhaps in a supplementary discussion. But... Uh, given that there is no middle ground between faithfulness to God and a subjection to man, then there also is none between freedom and coercion in education either. 
Either we are free, responsible individuals and families before God, or we are coerced and conjoled by some other forces. So that's the myth of neutrality. Now secondly is the issue of sovereignty. Uh, in the issue of sovereignty, I should say, uh, immediately raises the issue of purpose as well. I mean, after all, what is education? Why? For what reasons do we educate? Uh, uh, who decides what those reasons are? And who gets to impose their reasons for education, their ideas of education, their meanings of what education is on society, if anyone should get to impose them by force at all? So what is education? Well, the bare meaning, minimal meaning of the word education comes from a Latin derivation, and uh, it's from the, the Latin word educatus. Uh, the verb form is educare. A, e means out of, and ducere means to lead. So what does that mean? Education in its most basic idea of the word means to lead out. But out of what? And who exactly is the leader? And leading to where? So ostensibly this means to lead one out of ignorance. But uh, who defines what is ignorance? And on the converse of that, what is wisdom or knowledge? What is the truth into which this student is going to be led? And who decides that? I submit to you that whoever is in control of education determines these purposes, these definitions, even if they do not pronounce them publicly for everyone to see. And that pertains not only to the basic existence and structure of education in society, whether we will uh, have purely private education or institutions uh, versus compulsory civil government institutions, and penalties, by the way, but the impossibility of neutrality and the necessity of some overarching purpose then flow right down the line to every other issue of education. Whoever has control uh, decides what is taught, when it is taught, what is left out, what's not taught, what you can or cannot criticize, to what extent, with whom you will or will not associate, how discipline is administered, and a thousand other educational issues. Whoever controls education has determination over all these issues for you and for your child, and therefore for your entire legacy. And in a free society, all of these decisions would be left to the individual and the family. Never made an issue of coercion from the state or governmental level, uh, uh, no one but you standing before God should be allowed to make those decisions. Now, let me briefly then describe what a truly free society under God means for education. Freedom in education means this. Number one, exercising personal responsibility for your own children. Number two, federal, state, or local governments having no jurisdiction in this area and no ability, legal or otherwise, to coerce free individuals and families in any way. Number three, it would mean uh, not being forced to fund anyone else's children's education in any way, directly or indirectly. Number four, it would mean funding your own child's education. Number five, it would mean not demanding that anyone else fund your child's education. You see how those things work together. Indeed, it would mean not even allowing or accepting funding derived from coercive means or taxation or anything like that. 
The issues of sovereignty, non-neutrality, and purpose all mean that you have to make the decision for liberty. It will not happen for you. If you leave the decision to someone else, then you have abdicated your personal responsibility. If you accept that civil government can coerce you or others to pay for other people, then you have abdicated the principle of liberty. So the question of control and command of education forces us before God to choose who shall lead and how and will it be free. All right, so let's talk about education and leadership in education. We have to stop thinking of this thing called education as primarily a system or a system of institutions in itself. And we must stop thinking about this thing called education as something that is by definition a part of the civil government. There is no reason why civil government should have education as one of its functions, period, or even have regulatory oversight over education. In a free society, the primary focus of leadership in education would always and only be the family and secondarily the church and anyone whom the family freely decides to hire. And this is the ideal of freedom that's found both in the Bible and in Christian founding of this land. And through the founding years of American history up until I would say probably the 1830s, really even beyond that. So let's look at these two realities briefly the biblical reality and the historical reality. The biblical Christian case is very simple and it's very brief, and I'll state it very briefly. In both the Old and New Testaments, education was stated as the responsibility of the family, secondarily of the church. This is seen in the Old Testament, uh, most essentially in the Shema passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. And those verses read like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you should talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it's clear that education was to be carried out in the home and was to be engaged in constantly using every opportunity, using every resource, and, uh, and it was to, to reflect the content of God's teaching. Well, this is essentially repeated in the New Testament. The educational principle appears in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and he reiterates simply the fifth commandment. And he says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So whatever else we may derive from Scripture, and there is more to be derived, uh, the two most basic places that address education apply it directly to the family and in such a way that God's Word and godliness compose the central sacred purpose. In no place in Scripture is it even intimated that civil government should have any hand in this process. Now, since the American colonies were founded and settled almost exclusively by Bible-believing Christians, who established communities on Christian principles explicitly in many cases, and were averse to any government-established church 
or institution, uh, generally speaking, in some places that was not true, but in most cases it was. It should not surprise us that American culture in general, at least up until the 1830s and then even beyond, uh, reflect these biblical ideals of freedom and individual responsibility for education. Uh, this is attested by perhaps the most widely accepted, uh, at least most definitive source on the history of education in America, a scholar named Lawrence Kremen. Now, Kremen was a liberal and a progressive, so he had no particular fondness for America's Christian history. And yet, in his definitive four-volume history, he was faced with several clear facts. And here are a few of those. Number one, the Bible was the single most important cultural influence in the lives of Anglo-Americans. And as such, it formed the core of American education in learning to read, learning to write, as well as teaching morality and ethics and the meaning of life. As well, by the way, as supporting uh, such things as trades and vocations. Now, the household, number two, or the family, was, quote, and these are his words, the principal unit of social organization and, quote, the most important agency of popular education. The family undertook the training of children, quote, again, in some honest calling, labor, or employment. So education was from the, the cradle all the way to the job. Number three. In cases where the family was unable to further advance the education in the calling or trade, businesses and apprenticeships provided education. And it wasn't just book education like you would get in a university. It was, and these are his words again, a direct example of immediate participation. So it was in a trade in which a young person could advance, find employment, and contribute to society through those means. That was the way education was done. And by the way, entrance into those programs was free and it was easy. Unlike over in Europe at the time, Britain for example, uh, there, was, uh, 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 there was high demand for those jobs, but there was also a cartel in place. Uh, there was a high demand for skilled labor in the United States, but there were no guilds. There were no monopolies that controlled labor. So there were no things like informers, there were no legal obstacles, there was no statute of artificers, which they had in Britain. There were no fees and there were no property restrictions to get into these apprenticeships. They were wide open to anyone who wanted to come and quite easy to get into. Uh, number four, in addition to those things, there were also private night schools for working adults, uh, for adults who needed advanced education. Uh, these people could go there and improve their English and vocational skills, whatever. Uh, another great scholar of American history is a man named Samuel Eliot Morrison, widely known, very famous. And he notes that the sole exception to private education in the American colonies for a long time was in Boston. It was called the Boston Grammar School. Uh, but even this, uh, a couple of institutions that were there really only admitted children that could already read. So the question he asked is, where did they learn to read? Uh, and uh, here's what he has to say. He says, quote, Boston offers a curious problem. The grammar, or Boston Latin School, was the only public school down to 1684 when a writing school was established. And it is probably, there is probable that, the, that only children who already read were admitted to that. They must have learned to read somehow uh, since there is no evidence of unusual illiteracy in the town. Uh, one of the famous graduates of that Boston Latin School, by the way, was Benjamin Franklin. And he had very little good to say about it later in his life. Uh, but that's another story. 
Morrison finds a statistic that's rather illuminating about the state of private education at the time. And this is what he says, quote, uh, a Boston bookseller's stock in 1700 includes no less than 11 dozen spellers and 61 dozen primers. And that's from Morrison's book, The Intellectual Life of Colonial New England. So in other words, with no need for compulsory attendance laws or any other government regulation of education, people were educating themselves and their children just fine. They took the task so seriously that they had already created a huge demand for textbooks, which the free market had already met with a huge supply of textbooks. And just that one example in one store had a stock of 132 spelling books and 732 primers. So it was easy to come by. So it's clear that during the founding of America, from the pilgrims all the way up to the middle of the 19th century, education was a private affair. In fact, as late as 1860, throughout all the states, there were only about 300 public schools, even by that time, compared to over 6,000 private institutions. And that's not including the vast majority, by the way, who were homeschooling. Yet in view of education being a thoroughly private affair at the time, masses of children did not, as some would argue, fall through the cracks. In fact, literacy was extremely high, and even in rural western areas, compared to educated Britain at the time, and close even, some could argue, to the U.S. today. For example, rural Britain experienced roughly 48% literacy at the time. Compare that to roughly 70% literacy in rural America. Uh, in urban Britain, there was about 74% literacy, but in urban America, there was almost 100% literacy, and that's based on uh, different measures, signatures, deeds, wills, uh, militia rolls, voting registers, things like that. So it's hard evidence. Far western rural Connecticut, for example, this is way out in the sticks. In the, in the example of the town of Kent, which is almost right on the border with New York State, saw nearly 100% literacy out in the sticks. Okay, they took private education so seriously that the locals chartered a school even before they chartered a church. And the ministers of the soon-to-be church were the teachers at the school, and it was a private school. Even in the South, in the rural South, South Carolina, for example, like in most places, education was carried out mainly by the local pastors, and literacy there was about 80% in general, and among some populations, the German population, for example, it was about 90%. Okay, looking at all these facts and figures, the liberal scholar Kremen concludes this, quote, These rates are extraordinary and stand as eloquent testimony to the power the tradition of learning had acquired in the minds of provincial Americans. And he notes that this was purely driven by churches and households. And now remember, this guy has no allegiance to these things. He was only reporting the facts as a scholar. So from just these facts and figures, it's safe to say that family and church-led education is the American way. And it works. So as for the issue of sovereignty and leadership in education, this free family-driven American way provides so many benefits. Uh, and these are also seen in the history of the time. Number one, here's one. A free market education creates a vast array of choices in teachers, 
For example, from 1740 to 1776, in the space of one generation, Philadelphia newspapers included ads for no fewer than 125 private schoolmasters advertising their services. Now, you know, if you don't like the teacher you got, for example, you don't like the antagonistic teacher that your child's having problems with, you could go find another, no problem. After two or three tutors, you may learn that the problem's not with the teacher, but after, who, who knows. Uh, this, of course, also means that teachers have to compete with each other. And from that, the quality of teaching improves as teachers try to become better at what they do in order to gain a bigger following, get more business, to attract enough students to make a living. So that's one, one thing, more choice in teachers. Number two, at the time, different churches offered private schools as centers of their own denominational missions. Choose for yourself. Again, more choice. You want a Scottish Presbyterian education? No problem. German Reformed uh, uh, education? No problem. Wesleyan Methodist? No problem. Anglican? No problem. Uh, you want an Enlightenment education? No problem. No one forces you to go anywhere that denies your faith or even the distinctives of your own denomination. And the shell of that tradition, by the way, is still visible today, largely in some Lutheran circles and Roman Catholic parochial schools and the Dutch Reformed schools. Although in, in these cases, the education today has been watered down to be little more than a secular education with a weekly prayer service. But it's there. It can be seen. Number three, freedom in education means freedom in curriculum. And this, in turn, will begin to favor the needs of the real world, of individual faith, and of real practical options in the economy. Available jobs spur specialized education for personal advancement. Political news, when it's in print, drives a demand because people want to know what's going on. They want to, they want to participate. Religious education, as I said already, uh, helps drive literacy as well. Uh, and choice in curriculum as well, because those who wish to follow their religious confession uh, or its history will seek those things out. All of these phenomena were observable in the early and freer period of American history. Number four, it affects how we view funding of education. Freedom means we can no longer force others to pay for ours and no longer be forced to pay for others. And we've already noted that. There is no government money involved, and thus there's no government regulation or control based on those financial strings attached, okay? You, because you haven't taken the free benefit that the government has to offer, allegedly. Uh, but this means that we must also have personal initiative, personal planning, and individual sacrifice in regard to our education and that of our children. And of course, we'll discuss that further in the later segment, uh, the third segment of this talk. But when private money is all the line, uh, then you have a private interest in who teaches. And you have a private interest in what's taught, and when it's taught, and where it's taught, and how it's taught, and how much of it is taught. And uh, different students can go at different paces. And you have the fundamental inalienable right, 100%, uh, to demand or direct or change or alter all of those things whenever you want to. Okay? It takes time and money, yes. But have we all not said once or twice before that the price of freedom is high? Freedom ain't free. Uh, fifthly, and this is the point of legacy, if 
education is free. It gives uh, education a more long-term general outlook, generational outlook, I should say. Okay, now instead of just sending your kids to school to be going through the motions of reading, writing, arithmetic, now you are passing a legacy on um, to your children. And it's infused with a bunch of secular humanist liberal psychobabble if you're in that school, but in, in free education it's infused with your own worldview. Okay, now your children, and hopefully their children, will reflect a family heritage, a family religion, perhaps even a family business or trade. And they will retain a commitment, hopefully, uh, to local politics, to local culture. In short, a free society will tend to reproduce itself in terms of the children being images of the very hardworking, self-sacrificing parents who modeled the society to begin with. So we can see from this much, all that's been said so far, number one, a free society, in order truly to be called free, must involve only private education with no coercion or taxation from civil government. And number two, such a society in regard to education was in fact the American way for a very long portion of our history. It is the only view that we can properly call free. It once was the norm and it worked just fine. So the question is, why did it change? What brought about this colossal transformation of American education so much so as to turn the tables completely, where homeschools and private schools are the tiny minority looked down upon, uh, looked on with suspicion, and in some cases ridiculed, while the tax-funded government schools are the norm, and the vast majority of people not only accept the fact that government should force some people to pay for other people's education, they not only accept the fact, but they actively fight to keep it that way. They call it a right and proper an American, and even Christian. Now imagine that, Christians actively arguing and fighting to maintain a system of compulsion, of coercive taxation that imposes anything, let alone a secular humanist, pluralist, anti-Christian system of education. Okay? Now, there are some who will say that there were changes in society that required changes in education, and we'll look at that. Is that true? Okay. How was this basic freedom lost? I'll discuss that in the next segment.